0: Greetings, and thanks for checking out this weekly podcast from Kingdom Life Community Church. This week, Joe Couch was our special guest speaker. Joe is a director of Revolution 5 Leadership Institute. To find out more about Rev 5, visit rev5.org. To find out more about Kingdom Life Community Church, visit kingdomlife.global. Now, here's the message from Joe Couch. So, all right, well, excited to be back with you guys and share a little bit this morning. I'm going to take a little bit of time and um, just share some things that have been ruminating in my heart. Um, if I'm totally honest with you, there was some resistance in me to begin to head down the path that I'm going this morning, but I really felt like the Lord um, very specifically uh, guided me in that direction. So we're going to go that way um, and see what he has for us. So would you just join me as we pray one more time and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank you that you're good. God, we thank you that you're alive and active. God, we thank you that you've never once not been in control. God, we thank you that you're sovereign. And that no matter what accusation or misinterpretation or unanswered questions that we've experienced in life, you are good. And Father, we thank you so much for the privilege and the chance to gather here together. Lord, thank you for Steve and Michelle. God, thank you for their their, their shepherding and guiding. Lord, thank you for Ben and Khalida bringing them safely back to this body. Lord Jesus, and Father, we just thank you for what you're going to do this morning. In Jesus' name, everybody said, and thank you, Lord, for helping Ben find boots when it's snowy instead of (laughs) flip-flops. Like, yep, that's Ben. (laughs) All right, Um, I'm going to jump right in just for time's sake this morning. I want to take every bit that we have, and I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about um, this idea of good God. And when you say that, um, you usually say it one of two ways. Uh, you can see there's, a, there's an exclamation point and there's a question mark. And you usually say it one of two ways. And the the, way I, the reason I wrote it that way is because you usually kind of hear it like, good God, yes, he's alive, he's active, he's amazing, he's totally incredible, good God. But there's other times when maybe you say it or you hear it or you think it, good God, Like, I'm having a hard time interpreting the context of the situation through a lens that actually brings God's goodness into focus in my life right now. When you say it, when you you hear a statement like that, you usually, there's not a lot of middle ground. Either it's, I'm totally there, God is amazing, he's incredible, or I look at a scenario and I go, I don't know how God could be good here. A.W. Tozer says, What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Everything about life, everything about marriage, everything about our understanding of community and church, everything about school, everything about the trajectory of our career, everything that we filter is ultimately processed and squished down through this one lens that is our understanding of what we see when we look at God. So I would start this morning by simply asking you, what do you see when you look at God? What do you see? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you look at God? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Jesus. Um, I, just, I just want you to sit with this, though, as I, as I kind of move into this. You guys, are, you guys are a response church. I love that. <laughs> You're like, uh, if you want an answer, don't ask a question. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Steve, I love your people. This is awesome. Okay. I think this is a really significant issue for us right now in the church because I don't know that it would necessarily ever be articulated that it's being attacked, but I think if you look at the undercurrent in what's happening right now in culture, I would submit to you that the goodness of God is under fire. I would submit to you that whether we're talking about the media, the political scene, whatever whatever your purview is, even in the church, many times, I would submit that the goodness of God is under fire. And I know that so many times we mean well, but sometimes even from our churches, we're hearing the world is getting darker and everything's getting worse and everything's horrible and it's going downhill and we just got to oh, just kind of hold on and, and just, just climb into a cave and just wait for somebody to rescue us out of this stuff. And I would say, number one, if that's you, stop, you're scaring the children, And number two, I would say, come on, church. We only have one way, and it's forward. He's not insecure about what he's doing on the planet. He has a very confident objective, and it doesn't involve us retreating into a place of fear. But when we start talking about this issue of the goodness of God, I would submit, again, that it is under massive fire in our generation. And it's a major issue because our knowledge of his goodness is the limit of our faith. Our knowledge of his goodness is the limit of our faith. If I don't believe that God is good to heal, I might rattle off some really nice prayers about this and that and the other and quote some scripture and fill all the Christian news backlog and make sure I say it all right. But if I don't really believe that he's good to heal, the faith that's released when I pray for God to heal is either non-existent or severely limited. If I don't believe that he's a good father and a provider, then I can pray all I want, I can work all I want, I can do all I want, but in the end, if I really think that he's kind of a poverty, miserly God, then the way that I relate to the financial world, the way that I relate to provision, is filtered through this limited understanding of his goodness in my life. If I don't understand that he has a mission and a purpose and that that he has a target objective for me, I'm not just taking up space, sucking up air on the planet, trying to get through. If I don't understand, he goes, no, I actually made you the perfect match for the evil in your generation. I actually placed you in time and space because there were giants I wanted you to confront in this window of time, and I breathed you into that spot. If we don't believe that's the God that we're serving, then somehow it becomes easy to just kind of, let's make it through life, let's turn it to You know, let's not commit any big sins. Hang on by our fingernails and just kind of get through and be good Christian people. The limit of our knowledge of his goodness is directly tied to the faith that we have in our lives. If we want to see faith, if we want to see the church surging towards the front lines, if we want to see the kingdom of God advanced, if we want to see revival if you want to see strategic fronts move forward, I would submit to you that the foremost thing that we have to do is renew our minds with a knowledge of the goodness of God. Because our faith is not going to outpace the knowledge of our goodness. I think in the 21st century, we face a challenge that is unique. The human nature is still the human nature. Same stuff is still the same stuff. Everybody needs redemption. Amen? So the human condition is still the human condition. But we are in kind of a unique space where you can sit down, and in a matter of 10, 15, 20 minutes, you can see more than half a lifetime of people a generation or two or three ago. Right? Okay? So they say that today knowledge is doubling every year. If you can imagine your local library, next year, March, twice the size. Next year, twice that size. Next year, twice that size. In the medical community, they say it's 80 days right now. Everything we know about everything is doubling. That's an insane amount of information. So while we're still relating to God out of the, of the wiring of, the, of the, you know, our humanity, while we're still relating to him and loving him and we're on this journey, now has risen this simultaneous competition for the attention of our minds, and now we can sit here in between classes on our way to church while we're waiting to greet people, wherever it is, and there's this entourage of negative information that is filling our minds, and it subconsciously begins to compete with the goodness of God hundred years ago, I knew about right here in my radius, I knew roughly what was happening in the lives of people. And now you can hop on in a couple minutes and you can know about terror and you can know about famine and you can know about wars and you can know about horrific atrocities happening across the planet in minutes that are now competing with your understanding of the faith that you're living out. Again, the limit of our knowledge of his goodness becomes the limit of our faith. Now, in some ways, I can, I can share this stuff with you, and, and you're like, geez, Joe, just smile at us for a few minutes. Share some good news. We'll get there. But I want you to understand how interwoven this becomes in our lives before we try to zoom out and figure out how do we respond to it. Okay, so Joe Couch grew up in kind of middle American culture, had an amazing family. Mom, dad loved Jesus. So we're into their lives to him, and we're walking that out before we ever came into the picture. So totally common in my home. Uh, we pray about everything. Okay? Hey, can I join the sports team? Well, let's just pray about it real quick. All right, Dad. Sweet. Uh, he said yes. Yay. Okay. Hey, uh, there's this cool thing happening. A lock-in at church. Awesome. Can, did, did, mom, Dad, any problems? It's a church. Uh, Jesus. Okay, awesome. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Um, cool. Dad, there's this. Girl, Susie, that I'd like to fight over. The Lord said, "No, let's go." Okay, (laughs) should we pray about it, Dad? (laughs) Maybe we should just like it was just it was normal. It was normal in my family. We just prayed about everything. Like we we had we were we were that family. We have this beautiful, wonderful, insane gift of family. Okay, everything was perfect until it wasn't. Somewhere around six years old, I got exposed to. Illicit sexual activity. I didn't go looking for it. It came and found me. And all of a sudden, all this shame and all this condemnation and all this stuff starts roaring up inside of me as a a little kid. Don't have a filter? And all this turmoil starts unfurling in my little heart. And I don't know what to do with this. I go 6, seven, eight, nine, 10, start moving through my junior high years. Everything's changing. Just going through a lot of changes right now. Moving to my high school years, I'm involved in church, just starting to lead things, prayer meetings, worship, whatever it was. And in the back of my mind, I start to get this, maybe that was a near miss. Like maybe that was a path that my life started heading down, and it kind of ricocheted, and it came back around, and I'm going to be Okay. And and maybe that experience was just kind of a one-off. I have no idea what to do with it. I've never told anybody. But maybe I'm okay. Maybe that was just kind of a freakish thing, and I can just forget about it, and, and time will heal. It doesn't, it numbs. But the danger is still there. So I go through years with this deep little secret going on in my life. And I get into high school and college, and I think, wow, thank God. Thank, thank God. Uh, it's been 10 years, 14 years. <gasps> I think I'm okay. I don't know what to do with this appetite that's been awakened, but I think I'm okay. Maybe I can be okay. Family, friends, 35, 40 years old, comes over to our house, 18, 19 years old. And I wake up and Sunday morning for church, I wake up and in hindsight 2020 20, I get it, you can say what you want but just didn't think anything of it. Slept in my room. I wake up and he's making aggressive sexual advances towards me. Grown man, 35 40 years old. And I'm going, "What the heck is happening?" I didn't go looking for anything. And all of a sudden this process starts in this clean little church kid's mind that reaches all the way back to when I'm six, and now it's developing a trajectory, and now I'm 18, 19, 20, and for two years I cannot keep a straight thought in my head. I can't stand in a room full of a mixed company, let alone a room full of men. There's every sort of homosexual entourage of assault in my mind. I can't think straight. I can't hold a conversation. I can't keep my eyes where they're supposed to be. And I'm going, dear God, what just happened? I can fast forward and I can tell you just as dear sister was saying, Jesus' favorite story is Redemption. And I can stand here today, and I can tell you that he has cleansed me, and he has cleansed my heart, and he has cleansed my mind, and he has totally set me free, and he has put me on a path, whoo, <laughs> that doesn't lead to that. <laughs> He's put me on a path of freedom and I have joy and I I can sit down with people and I can legitimately share my story in my heart and I can be full of life because of what he's done, okay? So I celebrate, yeah, thank you, Jesus, okay? But as I start processing through that and trying to figure out what took place in my life, I began to realize that there's this balancing game that's going on. And as I start trying to make sense of it, I'm looking and I go, okay, I have this horrific experience that happens when I'm six years old. And all of a sudden, my mind and my heart is weighted this way. I have this other experience that happens when I'm 18, 19 years old. And my psychology leans towards this debt that's over here. And we know that physiologically, your brain will chemically reward you for resolving tension that you're experiencing. So I get to be 20, 21, 22. I get freedom. Thank you, Jesus. I'm moving forward, and I start thinking, wow, I'm getting to lead so many people out of sexual addiction and bondage. Like, that's why that happened. That's why that happened. I have a reason for that horrific experience, and it's significant, and it weighs more than the experience itself. And so I'm okay. Okay. I'm okay, God allowed that, that homosexual encounter with that man to happen because he wanted me to raise up and to release men. And I can look at my life and it's clear that he's allowing me to, to, to raise up champions and to speak life into them. And so he allowed that to happen because Satan was trying to rob me of my destiny. And so he, he kind of took that situation, he shoved it back in Satan's face, he set me free so that I could say, you too can be free. And he did that so that I could then help free men. Amen. Amen. And if you listen to what I just said, because I just told you what you have probably also bought in the same line. You amen me. I love it. Thank you, Jesus. But you amend what my psychology just did. And underneath what just happened is I said, God did that. And whether I say overtly, God did that, or God enabled that, or God made that space, or whatever the language is that we are wrestled to use to describe. Somehow, as we move forward, God is responsible for what happened when I was six. God is responsible for what happened when I was 18. And I play the rationalization game so I can get some kind of balance, and that works for a time. It works for a time until... There's a second encounter, and there's a third encounter, and there's some kind of cancer, and now the virus that everybody was freaking out about that was no big deal is infecting somebody that I love, and now the marriage that I hope would work out is on the rocks again, and now the person that I love is suffering with terminal illness, and we get hit again and again and again, and we stop being able to rationalize and find reasons big enough for why this junk is encountering our lives. And without ever articulating, without ever putting it out there in language, we begin to question and doubt the goodness of God because we don't have enough rational reasons for why that experience happened. There's no longer a reckoning. There's no longer a balance in our lives. And now there's some situation that we just can't deal with and it comes down to how could God be good? How could God be good? I don't want you to raise your hands, but boy, have I been there. We sat down not too long ago with a couple that was getting divorced, some dear friends, and the words that came out of her mouth we're meeting one-on-one with her, the words that came out of her mouth was, if this is God and this is his best, then I don't want anything to do with the God that you're proclaiming. How could he create this much pain in my life? Part of what happens in this process is that the lack of our knowledge and our ability to interpret a situation, the lack of our knowledge of his goodness Creates a vacuum that fear fills. A lack of our knowledge of His goodness creates a vacuum that fear fills. Look at this passage with me for a second in Matthew 14. You guys have probably all read this story a hundred times. He says, Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake, and when the disciples saw him walking, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear, but Jesus immediately said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, came toward Jesus. When he saw the wind and the waves of afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Now, growing up, I always saw this passage, and we were like, we got to be water walkers, Get out of the boat. Yeah, Peter. Eleven guys were in the boat. Peter was on the water. Be like Peter. And I'm reading it, and I'm looking at how Jesus is responding. And you kind of almost expect Jesus to go, Peter, wow, there was 11 guys in the boat, just like we tell it. There's 11 guys in the boat. Peter, you got out of the boat, man. They were terrified. You got out of the boat. You walked on the water. Peter, I am so impressed with you. Peter, you're my man. He doesn't. There's two people that I know of in the history of the world that walk on water, and one of them rebukes the other one. He goes, Peter, why did you doubt? Not, hey, good, good job, Peter. I'm real proud of you. Peter, why did you doubt? Did you take your eyes off me? Did you begin to look at the circumstance? Did you forget how good I am? If he thought Jesus was trying to kill him, he never would have gotten out of that boat. If he didn't believe that Jesus' heart towards him was for his redemption and to bring life and favor, he never would have engaged that situation. He believed that Jesus was good. And then you watch him get out, and Jesus is like, Peter, did you forget who I am? Did you forget that I'm good? Did you forget that I'm full of life, love, and affection for you? I think sometimes this, this is a microcosm to me of the church. I think we look outside and we see what's happening around the, around the, the, the nation and the planet. And I think sometimes we want to go, hey, church, good job. Well, we didn't really do what we set out to do, but I mean, we tried. You know? Hey, we did something. Hey, we, we, we got out of the boat. We got out of the boat, and we didn't really impact our area or our community. We didn't really get involved in the larger picture of our civic responsibility. We didn't, really, we, we didn't really do something out there, but at least we had good church. Come on. Anybody in here? I have no stones to throw at the bride of Christ. She is his woman, and I will affirm and love her all the days of my life, and I will wrestle for her to be pure before him and right. I think sometimes Jesus is looking at the church globally today, and he's going, look at me! I'm not intimidated by what you're intimidated by. Have you forgotten that I'm good? Have you forgotten my nature? Don't interpret that circumstance without looking at me. Look at my goodness. Look at who I am. I'm not proud of you for trying. I didn't need you to get out of the boat. I needed you to lock eyes with me. That was what I wanted from you all along. You lock eyes with me. Yeah, we'll walk on water. Yeah, we'll multiply food. Yeah, we'll go across mountains. Yeah, we'll get picked up here and dropped down here. Lock eyes with me. I'm not intimidated. I can speak a word and suspend new supernatural law around the word that's released from my voice. I can level mountains. I can walk on water. I can cause it to rain. I can cause, uh, that's not an issue for me. What I need from you is to lock eyes and to remember who I am. I think sometimes we look a little bit like this, and we fill our minds with the news, and we fill our minds with the stuff, and again, I realize there's a place. I'm not trying to put my head in a hole, but sometimes our minds look like this, and we check out the news feeds, and we check out the social media, and we check out what's happening next door, and we check out, and we we, we continue to fill our minds with real stuff, real problems. We're we're, we're to actually meet with solutions to the challenges in a broken world. And we fill our minds, and so we look at them, and they're full of all this stuff. And then we try to turn around, and we try to move in some significant capacity of faith. And all that's in there is this entourage of information that's competing for the goodness of God in our lives. And then we can't understand why there's not authority and power coming out of us. Look at these couple verses with me real quick. In Romans one twenty-eight. There's a rebuke. He says, They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. He goes, I actually intended for you to be totally focused on my goodness, but because you didn't think it was worthwhile, I actually allowed you to degenerate into this place of despair. Hello? Hello? Then those who feared the Lord talked together with each other. The Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in the presence concerning those that feared God and honored his name, Malachi 3.16. There's a whole bunch of stuff moving across the planet. There's a whole bunch of conversations. And somewhere over here in the corner of a cornfield in Morrison, Illinois, somebody goes, do you remember when God did this? Did you remember the way that he was faithful? Did you remember? And heaven goes, Peter, shut up. Gabriel, come here. Bring the book. Write this down. This mat, This is what I love. I love it when my children gather up and they remind themselves of who I am. They remind themselves of my goodness. They remind themselves that I'm in control. They remind themselves that I'm faithful. That's what I'm talking about. Sometimes I think we need to be, instead of, instead of having despair parties, and it happens so easily. I get it. I've been there too. It happens so easily, but sometimes I think we need to be sitting around having dreaming parties. And we'd be, we'd be talking about, hey, do you remember when your daughter went to, went to that school, and um, something happened, God got a hold of her heart, and then she started praying, and this revival thing started, back and it was, it was amazing. Can, can you, uh, that was, wow, what if that happened? And what if that led to this? And what if something began in Morrison that infected, you think Corona's infectious, try righteousness. What if something started in Morrison and it infected Clinton. And it started in Morrison and infected Fulton. And it started in Morrison and infected all the surrounding towns. And Des Moines got word of it. And Cook County heard about what was happening because it was so infectious. What if we sat around and we told so many stories about his goodness and about his faithfulness and about his commitment to us that it looked like we were renewing our minds and it looked like the truth of God's word dumped in here. And do you know the only way to really get something like that out? You have to have something heavier. You have to have a knowledge heavier than the previous knowledge that you put in there. If it's not heavier, it won't displace it. The only way to get wrong thinking about God out is to renew your mind with right truth about who he is. Until our minds, they look like this. They're not convoluted. It's not a confusing process. We spend time renewing our minds. We spend time dreaming about what God's going to do until our minds are renewed and what's flowing out of us is life. And it's like we can't even get a thought out of our mouths that's not filtered through this goodness of God thought. This thought goes to spare and the filter goes, got it. Spit zone, glad there's nobody here, sorry. <laughs> the filter goes, got it? And it doesn't get out. And the next thought is, God is good, and it shoots right through. And you go, despair and hopelessness, and all the marriages are falling apart, and the filter goes, got it. Didn't make it through the goodness of God filter. You go, I see pure marriages. I see fidelity. I see righteousness. I see joy. Shoots out of your mouth, makes it right through the good God filter. What if we start thinking like that and what's flowing out of us looks like the truth of the word of God because it's displaced. It's an active process. It's not a one-time thing. It's an active inflowing of truth that displaces what is untrue. Who? I gotta go. My story, I'll fast forward with you and I just wanna highlight this. I make it through, I get deliverance, blah, 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 blah. I'm still playing this game in my heart. And I move into my late 20s and I get that phone call, 2.30 in the morning. Hey, we just received word. Your brother in Nepal was hit by an oncoming vehicle returning from that village that he was going to with the gospel for Jesus. He just got hit by a vehicle. We're confirming the details, but he's dead. Hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. How can this be true? What about Jesus? What about Psalms 91? He raises the dead. Let's go pray for him to raise the dead. Let's go spend six days, no food, no nothing, praying our guts out as hard as we can at the embassy over a frozen body that we pull out of this freezer and Kathmandu, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we're getting emails and letters and phone calls from people all over the world, and he doesn't get up. I don't know your journey, but I don't think to this day there was a lack of faith in that room. But he didn't get up. Fast forward a couple years. My younger sister's going to get married. She's three months out, calls me. Husband's dad just died. Fiance's dad just died. Rushed to the hospital. Out of, out, totally out of the blue. Rushed. Died just like that. Family's kind of reeling a little bit. We're like, okay, we, we, we've gone through pain and crisis. We, we know this rope. Let's be strong. Let's stand there. Five weeks later, his mom gets shot in the back of the head right before the wedding. Hold on! Hello! I can't pray Psalms 91 anymore. What is going on? year later, have a baby. Struck with downs. I'll leave that for your interpretation. It doesn't fit my biblical worldview. It's not his best. I don't believe that. If you do, I'll leave that for you but I've got some questions that aren't answered and the data is mounting against God's goodness in our behalf. Haven't we been faithful? Haven't we abstained? Haven't we served you with all of our hearts? Fast forward a few more years, literally sitting around a table in the hospital. Doctor looks at my family and goes, I don't know how else to tell you this, but your mom is dying of a broken heart. Yeah, that makes sense happy family of 6 we're down to 3 what is happening 18 months later my other sister's husband diagnosed with an aggressive form of brain cancer 6 months later he's gone Now, listen, let me just pause for a second. I'm not up here to tell you about my pain. I know that I could sit for 20 minutes and find pain is deep or deeper and probably almost everybody in here. It's not about me. I'm just trying to help you understand my journey of my own heart that's a Jesus-loving, church-attending, Holy Ghost-dancing guy that has an honest journey of not beginning, not being able to reconcile this stuff in my life. And we're just going, God, How? What is happening? And I'm out of pat answers. If I'm honest with you, I can barely even pray. I can read. It's intellectual. I can barely even pray because he's not safe. And what I never realized is that my entire life, my entire life up to that point, I was serving in a transaction relationship with God. I read Proverbs. I read Deuteronomy. You do this, you get this. Got it. Nailed it. I'm on it. And all of a sudden, there's this imbalance that I can't explain anymore that's unfurling in my life. I don't know what to do with this. And I'm like, where is this? Like, what do I do? I have been faithful. Where are you, God? And by the way, I don't think you're good right now. And the Lord begins to show me that everything that I had understood about him was really a transaction trying to get something from him. And it was okay, but I was crossing a threshold where he was inviting me into a different understanding of him. And he goes, "There's, there's really, if I can say it this way, four levels of Christian living. And he goes, the first level, you go, hey, I believe. I believe in Jesus. I believe there's a God. I believe in Jesus. Great. James 2.19 says, so do demons, and they tremble. Like, that's great. It's good that you believe. But we're still not dialed in to where he's trying to get us. The next level up is a place you go, I surrender. I actually surrender to him. I want him to have the reins of my life. I don't want to be in control. I'm not trying to retain anything. Everything is about him and what he's doing. He's sovereign. He's right. He's perfect. I surrender everything about my life. I think that's where real Christianity starts. (laughs) The next level up, you cross a very difficult threshold. And now you're going, I accept the collateral damage of my obedience as your responsibility. And this is really hard because we go, if I obey that way, those people are going to suffer. Can I be honest? It's easy in some sense to travel to dark places around the world when you're 22 years old and you have no wife and no kids and no ministry. It's very different when a mentor invites you to go to Afghanistan and your heart says, yes, you are to go. And you go, heck no. What about this beautiful woman? What about these four little girls? What about blah, 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 blah. And he goes, that's my responsibility. You obey. And you begin to go, I'll accept the collateral damage of my obedience. It's your responsibility. It's no longer mine. And finally, I think there's this place where we go, I receive whatever you put in my life. I'm not trying to bargain with you. I don't need the plus and minuses to equal zero at the end of my life. There doesn't have to be a positive balance. I will hold on to what's true about you no matter what happens in my life. And the Lord goes, hey, what about Jeremiah? I got a job for you. I want you to preach your entire life. No converts. Go. Sweet. Isaiah, I've got another group of stubborn people. I want you to preach your entire life to the upper crust to the political scene of society, and I want you to preach your guts out, and in the end of your life, they're going to shove you inside of a hollow log and saw it in half and think they're doing a service to God. David, Mary, hey, got a job for you. You're going to be socially ostracized. You're going to bear the king of kings. By the way, it's going to pierce your own heart. Job, we know the story well. The one person at the end of his life that's still there, his wife, is going, curse God and die. It's clear he is not good to you, Job. You got your head in the sand? Look at the stats, Job. She says, are you still holding on to your integrity? Do you still believe that God is good? And I start to realize that most of my life was just trying to get something. And that was okay. It's true. But there's a higher level living in Christianity that I believe he's inviting us as the church in this time. In this window on the planet, he's saying, I need you to come up above Proverbs. I need you to come up above Deuteronomy. All that is true. I need you to come up higher and accept the collateral damage as my obedience. I need you to stand up all the way until I have total permission to make your life my message. Because you want to get the world's attention? That's where we're going. And the beauty is the stories that we love to tell about intimacy and passion and experiencing Jesus, they are all wrapped up in fourth level living Christianity. I'm going to do this super fast because I want you to hear this. When you read in Hebrews 11, when you read in Hebrews 11, there's the story of the faith passage and we all love it. It's amazing. We rant, we chat. It's, it's rally. It's so good. And you read through. It the mouths of lions and women receive back their dead. And you're like, yes, yes, yes. Love those faith stories. And then there's a shift kind of right in the middle. And all of a sudden he's like, Some were sawn in two. Some ran around naked. Some were persecuted and destroyed. The same faith that shut the mouths of lions and raised people from the dead was the same faith that drove people to declare his goodness when they shoved them inside of a log and sawed it in half. The same faith that is honorable before him over here is the same faith that drives some of us into circumstances where if you don't know the goodness of God, you will never go and your life will not testify of him. Everybody knows the story of the Moravian missions. Everybody knows about these two young men who were part of a prayer meeting that lasted a day and then a week and then a month and then a year and then a decade. And for a hundred years, these guys prayed. And they prayed and they sought, or not for a hundred years, the prayer meeting lasted a hundred years. These two men, early in the movement, prayed, they found out about some slaves that had no witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they start doing some radical stuff. They, their, their faith starts moving because of their knowledge of his goodness. They start moving in a direction that sounds absolutely insane. Would you listen with me for the next 10 minutes to this story
1: as it's told to these gentlemen? Growing up, I thought there was no purpose. I thought that everything was emptiness. And it's not that I didn't believe. It's just that sometimes my faith felt more like a list of rules than someone who actually loved me. And I tried to find you in everything all the time. But I remember when you found me crying and sat by my side. All the mistakes I thought were keeping me from you turned out to be nothing. In light of the awe-inspiring truth, thank you, God, for grace upon grace. I once was lost, but now i am found. Was blind, but now I see. These are the words that cut me down every time because they so perfectly depict me. And believe me when I tell you, I have tried every lie that swore it could gratify these eyes. All I once held dear and built my life upon is nothing more than emptiness. All this world admires, the things that they call God's, completely worthless now in comparison to this.
2: Oh Jesus, would you take away my functional lack of need, make me dependent on you, and set me free. Jesus, we wait on you. Please meet us here and move. I believe you can do more in my waiting than my doing can do in all my moving. But still, faith without works is dead. There's a time to wait and a time to move, a time to keep my mouth shut and a time to boldly speak the truth. I live simply to make you happy, to put a smile on your face, and I see the things of earth growing strangely dim. In the light of your glory and grace, praise you, Jesus, for you are good, worthy of my entire life. I will worship you with everything I am. My life is yours for all of time. Do with me as you please, Jesus. You're the only thing I've got when I die that I'll keep. And when I finally arrive, it is your name that I'll speak. Jesus, not by my own righteousness, but by your blood I am free. Not by my goodness, it is only you, my king.
1: Jesus, break my heart for what breaks yours. This calling burns within me. Search my heart. I'm here and ready to serve. Aside from you, I am nothing. You know, I have but one passion. It is Jesus Christ and him alone. And if the world is the field, and the field is the world, then henceforth the country will be called my home. Where
2: I can best waste my life for you, Lord, make me bold. I'll be your servant. Send me to the lost. I'm your bondservant no matter what the and God does not have a backup plan. We the church are it. Some Christians call us radicals and it's not that I disagree with this, but isn't that the calling for every single one of us? The kingdom of God is now and it is the violent who take hold of it. Following Jesus is not just a weakened thing. It's a lifestyle of radical love and greater love has no man than this. Our incarnate God taking on human flesh to lay his life down for friends. How dare I call this love and not bear my cross to the end? He crossed every line as he hung on that cross, placing our sin between his shoulder blades. He threw all my pain far as the east is from the west and forgot. Am I not called to do the same? This is our time. I will preach the gospel, and when I die, I will be forgotten, and your name will be glorified. Your
1: name be glorified. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne high and exalted and the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood seraphim each having six wings with two wings they covered their faces and with two they covered their feet and with two they were flying and they were calling out to one another holy
2: holy holy is the lord of hosts all the earth is full of his glory at the sound of their voices the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke woe is me For I am ruined, I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling among a people of unclean
1: lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And with it he touched my mouth and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your iniquity is removed, and your sin is atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us?
2: Brother, will you pray with me, for my heart is broken. I just finished the most moving conversation. He spoke of a slave island, two to three thousand slaves, and not one has ever heard of the hope we have in Christ. The slave owner said he was through with Christianity, and no one would ever be allowed to preach to his slaves. Even if someone shipwrecks here, we'll quarantine him, he said. No one will ever speak of Christianity, at least not to my property. And if they try, it will cost them their lives. Brother, i broke in the tears after hearing this. So many souls and no one is allowed to preach. These slaves are brothers and sisters. We must act. Even this island is not beyond his reach. Well, if this is our time, our chance to die, I will preach the gospel. And when I die, I
1: will be forgotten and your name will be glorified. Your name be glorified. We can't just do nothing, and I won't stand idly by watching in this world so absolutely centaur. We can't just sit back and watch, calling it good enough to smile in church and do nothing, saying, Jesus owns my life. I have but one candle of life to burn, and I would rather burn it out on an island filled with darkness than in this land flooded with light. This light is not my own, and it will not be hidden. I am a city on a hill and shine a light that will never end. Jesus, here's my life. I know this world has much to offer, but it's you I choose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose so here we are with open hands and together we will sing by the precious blood of the lamb this is our testimony this is our time our chance to die i will preach the gospel and when i die i will be forgotten and your name will be glorified your name be glorified A voice began to thunder who will go for us trembling we respond here am i lord send me may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering
0: most of you know the rest of that story and that those two men actually went on to sell themselves into slavery so that as slaves they would be free to witness amongst those who had no representation of the gospel and you have to ask again what compels somebody to live at that level what compels somebody to go i don't need an equals anymore I don't need to add it all up and balance it all out. I know that he's good, and I'll go anywhere. I'll do anything. I'll pay the price. I'll live out of the goodness no matter what my circumstance interprets. I want to go back for one more second, and I want to hear these guys in conclusion. And I want you to think as if David and Leonard from time ago, from the balcony of heaven... From that great cloud of witnesses, as if speaking through time, had the chance to speak to Morrison, Illinois, and say, this is what's true. If they had the chance to lean over the balcony of heaven and say, we're standing over here cheering your name. We're standing over here calling you. We're standing over here going, if you could see what we could see and you understood what we understood, this is what we would communicate to you. Would you go back one more time and let them bring to conclusion this idea, only not just history past, what if it was history now and history future?
1: Now, as I look upon this landscape through time and culture, everyone I see is a slave. Let me paint for you a picture. You live in a world where losing your phone is more painful than losing your virginity, where sex is free and love is pricey where modernization means nudity, and passion is profanity. And if you don't smoke dope and drink, you're out of style, and I guess you're not free. A world where boys stay boys and never want to become men, and girls become men to rule over them. With that controller in hand, he feels the illusion of control. And with less clothes on, she steps
2: up to play his role. You live in a world where if you don't fool your parents, it's because you're not clever enough. And bathrooms have become photography studios to make believe love. Don't be fooled by Instagram, Snapchat, or TikTok. Your entire generation is enslaved. The smiles and filters keep them chained under key and lock. And despite what this world tells you, your own happiness is not the only reason you exist. Though through the subtlety of slavery, these lies are easily missed. We have a whole generation trading God given dreams for lives of lies on smartphone screens we live in a world where people fear thieves and terrorists more than they fear God our entire culture is enslaved what will be your response we We live in in a culture
1: where people live live for the love love of the moment, moment but find neither happiness nor true love in it where we murder in the name of human rights like sinking our teeth into the forbidden fruit knowing it's a lie where worshiping God is difficult and temples are turned to social club cults where lies become realities and ladies fear pregnancy even more than murdering. Just rape our morality and abort our mistakes. Evil no longer exists, and love is a game.
2: This entire generation is enslaved. And where are the young people? We're supposed to be on the front lines, but we've gotten too comfortable sleeping through life. Far too many are drowning in apathy. Where is the truth, the challenge, the glorious call to die? You think doing nothing will make you happy, and you think he will know you on that judgment day? Too afraid of offending, we're not doing anything. We have either love without truth or truth. Truth without love, and truth is we need both. Drowning in knowledge, yet stagnant in love. We must crucify this apathy. And believe me, I know it's a high price to pay, but surely
1: there's a remnant who will stand firm on the front lines with me. Where are the young believers actually running this race? Faces marred by dust, sweat, and blood, standing strong as slaves by choice to the way. Lives defined by risk, pain, and courageous love. A love that won't back down, that risks it all. A love that does not love their lives so much as to shrink away from death. A love that, that will, not will not stop until nothing's left. You are the church, strong and courageous, a perfect match for the evil in your generation. You are the church, the bride of Christ. Please, friends, open up your eyes. You are the church, a light to our pitch black culture, salt to a society that has lost all. All it's this world is sick and dying, and this is no time to be on the sidelines watching. You are the church, and I believe you are capable of doing all that God has called you. Don't back down. Don't give up hope. Be strong and courageous, for you are not alone. We, we are, are the church. church. For me to live is Christ and to die is King cut my cross and die every day so holy beautiful and worthy is his name it is my honor to waste my life for him friends we have a chance to give our entire lives a chance to live for something greater a chance to die may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering who will go for us
0: thanks for joining with us today and if that message touched your heart in some way, please let us know by emailing us at info.kingdomlife@aol.com.
1: You can also find us and reach out to us on Facebook. And we hope that you will join us again for another podcast from Kingdom Life Community Church.